Um, here's a definition. I've got a slide up here. I think I have a slide up here. Definition of mother that I found this week that I thought was appropriate to share. Mother, a noun. One person who does the work of 20 for free. See also masochist, loony, or saint. John Wesley once said, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians of England. And I share that quote as both an encouragement for and a credit to our mothers in this room. Good job, moms, with the children that you've raised. And for those of you that are in the thick of it, keep going. And with that line from, from Wesley, I sort of want to put an, an end to an exchange that I hear our mothers sometimes having. It's an exchange that goes like this. What do you do? Oh, I'm just a mom. Seriously? Just a mom. Think about that. You, you raise immortal souls. They grow inside of you, first of all, magically. You feed them from yourself. You tell them stories that shape their hearts and minds. You take the world and you condense it and give it to them in a way that they understand. Is there a bigger job than that? I mean, Dad, you know what Dad does? Dad keeps the lights on, mostly. But I just think there are few things in life as heroic as what a mom does every day. 18 years, three meals a day, shoving stuff in their face, constantly keeping them from dying, you know, crafting the whole of their reality for 18 years per unit. That's what moms do. They write the preface and the opening chapters of a life story that will last forever. So the just a mom thing, man, that's the most inverted idea in our culture. I'll step off my soapbox. Turn to Mark 14. Mark 14. Last week in our study of Mark's gospel, we sat in awe as we watched a woman in Bethany anoint the body of Jesus for burial. She took a bottle, a full bottle of spikenard, a rare and expensive ointment. She broke it and she poured it over the head of the Lord Jesus. And that's not the only thing she broke. She broke cultural convention as well, interrupting the dinner of Jesus and his disciples, but she didn't care. She was scolded for her actions, but it didn't faze her. This was an action of love and honor and worship. And in defending her, Jesus tells us that this was also an act of preparation. The woman knew and believed that Jesus was going to the cross He had said it multiple times. She grasped it. She understood it. She knew he was going to die, and so she was preparing his body. The text says she did what she could do. And the way that the story is situated in the chapter, Mark's intent is for us to contrast this woman's love, this woman's likely Mary, Mary's love for Jesus with the scribes and the priests who are seriously planning to arrest and kill Jesus. And it's also there to contrast her with Judas. Judas who has commiserated with those scribes and priests, and he's agreed to a price to betray Jesus. We see that in verses 10 and 11. So it's a stark contrast. There are those who deeply love and understand Jesus, and there are those who hate him. That's the intent of the inclusio or the, or the sandwich technique in the first 11 verses of Mark's gospel. And as we move into chapter 14, 
we see that the public ministry of Jesus is now over, which means everything in Mark's account is now carrying us, carrying the reader, the studier, to the crucifixion. The cross is no longer years away or months away or days away. The cross is now hours away for Jesus. Chapter 14 is the longest chapter in the book, and we are going to study verses 12 through 21 this morning. Let's read them together. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes these words. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is God's word. So today I'll be talking a lot about the subject of divine sovereignty. What is divine sovereignty? It's God's power and goodness expressed in his control over all of creation. It's God's power and his goodness expressed in his control over all of creation. When it comes to talking about God, nothing has a way of putting man in his proper place than the subject of divine sovereignty. It's a powerful doctrine. It's a humbling doctrine. It's an upsetting doctrine. It's a profoundly comforting doctrine. But it's a, it's a doctrine that many people try and object to, or, or maybe at first they do not like. Listen to Jonathan Edwards and his experience with divine sovereignty. He says, From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God. I have, often since had, I have often since had not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. And I share that from Edwards because you may not love some of the things I say about the sovereignty of God today. They may be new to you or appear repugnant to you, but that's normal. The greatest proponent of God's sovereignty in the history of the American church, Jonathan Edwards, he had the exact same experience. So as I say these things, let them marinate a little 
Let them soak in. I think you'll come around. But before we get to that, we need to talk through some issues regarding timing. Verse 1 gives us the time of the, excuse me, I should say verse 12 gives us the time of the events that follow. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. And I alluded to this last week, the feast of unleavened bread was the seven-day Jewish feast, which was immediately preceded by the oldest of Jewish holy days, the Passover. So the Passover celebration commenced the feast of unleavened bread. Their timing on the calendar and what they commemorated coincided. So over time, the eight-day period, it sort of all blended together. It was sometimes called the Passover, and sometimes the whole thing was referred to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The New Testament itself uses these two terms interchangeably in talking about the same things, and that's just echoing sort of the common parlance of the day. But as I shared last week, Passover, it was on the 14th of Nisan. Nisan was the first month in the Jewish calendar. Four days prior to Passover, on the 10th of Nisan, each Jewish family in Israel was to select a, a spotless sacrificial lamb. If it was not one of their own, they were, or excuse me, if it was one of their own, they were to separate that lamb from the rest of the flock separated until the time came for it to be slain. All the while, they were carefully inspecting the lamb and examining the lamb, ensuring that it was suitable for their sacrifice. And during his final week, Jesus would have no doubt done this with his disciples, selected a lamb so that together they could observe the Passover. And you remember, I mentioned a few weeks ago, historical records indicate as many as a quarter of a million lambs were slain on a typical first century Passover. This required hundreds of priests to carry out the task. And so because of the massive crowds and the intense amount of traffic in the temple, tradition permitted no more than two men to bring a lamb to the temple for sacrifice. And after each lamb was slain, it was immediately taken home and then roasted for the Passover meal. And here's where the timing details get interesting. Here's why I bring this up. The Jews of Jesus' day had two different methods of reckoning the calendar. So the Pharisees, as well as those from the region of Galilee and all the districts to the north, they counted their days from sunrise to sunrise. But the Sadducees... And people from Jerusalem and Judea, they calculated their days from sundown to sundown. And what that meant is for the 14th of Nisan, for a Galilean, that meant it fell on a Thursday. While the 14th of Nisan for the citizens of Jerusalem fell on a Friday. Thus, the slaughter of the lambs could take place in two periods on successive days which would ease the work of the priests. It also made room for all the people to eat the Passover meal in Jerusalem proper. That was a law mandated in the book of Deuteronomy. This is why Jesus and his disciples, they're not celebrating the Passover in Bethany because you have to observe it in the city. You have to go find a place and get it prepared. But even more importantly, that twist explains why Jesus and the disciples, who were all Galileans except Judas, it's why they ate the meal on Thursday evening. And even more importantly, these sort of details about timing explained how Jesus could observe the Passover 
and then the next day be slain on the Passover. Everybody got that? Does that make some sense? So now we come to the two-point outline there in your notes. King Jesus' control over the arrangements for Passover and King Jesus' control over the announcement of his betrayer. Point one. There are some dubious but influential scholars who believe that from this point on in the gospel narrative, that the, that the passion story, that the matters, everything surrounding Jesus simply escaped his control. They say that he overplayed his hand and he was overcome by the power of the Sanhedrin and the power of the Romans, and therefore he died a helpless victim. But this is utterly false. In the verses ahead of us, in the verses I read, we see the king's mastery over the smallest details leading to his death. And what this reveals is both his commitment to die for us, that he is utterly resolute in his commitment to go to the cross, and it reveals his sovereign power over all things. First, look at how he arranges the details for the meal itself. He sent two of his disciples Remember, only two could take the lamb to the temple for sacrifice. Luke tells us the two are John and Peter. Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, this should sound familiar. This is similar language to what he had told a couple of his disciples earlier that week when he told them to go to Bethpage and find the colt that's tied there because that's the colt he would enter in to Jerusalem sitting upon. Now, customarily, only women carried pots of water. Men would carry water in a skin or in a pouch. So though Jerusalem would be crowded, just overrun with people, you've got a man carrying a pot of water, and so he's going to stick out. He's like the guy at the mall holding his wife's purse, right? And by the way, I've been that guy, so I'm not making fun of him. I'm just coming alongside him. So they are to follow this guy carrying the pot of water. And wherever he enters, they're to say to the master of the house, now stop there a second and think for me. Jesus is displaying such powerful omniscience here. He knows that they'll find this man. Right? He doesn't give detailed directions about which gate to enter and which avenues or alleyways to walk down. He knows that they'll find this man that this man will, will be headed directly to the arranged home, not stopping along the way, and that there's not going to be any issue with any of it. Amazing. Then they're to say to the master of the house, which incidentally, many believe the homeowner to be the family of John Mark, the author of this gospel. I don't know that for sure. I'm not going to say that definitively, but that is an intriguing detail. Anyway, they're to say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. So why all this control from Jesus? Why all this care down to the very last detail? Well, first, because doing it this way hid the location of the meal from Judas. Jesus knew who his betrayer was, and he knew if he did it this way, this concealed the Passover location so that Judas could not reveal it, so he could not go ahead of them and tell the priests. 
Judas knew they'd be coming to the city because you had to eat in the city. He knew it would be in the evening, Thursday evening, because they were from Galilee, so the timing was a giveaway. But location was unknown to him. Judas would only learn that when he arrived. The second reason Jesus took such great care is that he wanted to control the environment of the Passover meal. This upcoming meal was easily the most important meal eaten in the history of the world. Why? Because it identified Christ as the true and better Passover lamb. As the one who would deliver God's people, not just from slavery in Egypt like the first Passover lambs did, but from the slavery of sin and death. It would be the final meal Christ would eat on this earth, his institution of the Lord's Supper would graphically explain the centrality of Christ to all of salvation. His blood must be wine to us. His flesh our bread. The blood spilled out for us. The body broken. That would all crystallize and come together in this meal. The final reason Jesus took such care and control in preparing the meal was that the Passover, it was a moment when devout Jews, they were filled with the hope of God's intervention. Exodus 12.42 says this of the Passover. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's what it was initially. And then as they carry forward the tradition of celebrating it, so this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The Jewish commentary on that passage reveals something really, really powerful. It says, in that night they were redeemed. And in that night, they will be redeemed in the future. Jesus' fulfillment of the Passover is in accord with the dreams of Israel. He wants them to see this. All their hopes are wrapped up in this this, this, this this, this Messiah who would come and set them free. He is that Messiah. So much so that he is the true and better lamb, the true and better Passover. We are so far away from Jesus overplaying his hand. Jesus was playing the hand exactly as he wanted. His death would be no accident, not even close. In fact, the language of the Last Supper itself, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. That makes no sense if Jesus was not in complete control over his own death. Jesus maintained sovereign, premeditated, and detailed mastery over all of these events. You and I, we can't even run errands without getting distracted and sidetracked and shanghaied and sent every which way. Jesus is pulling together dozens and dozens and dozens of tiny details to ensure that everything plays out as planned. And here's what you need to see about that. A God who is in utter and complete control in utter and complete control, when the the foundations of his own earthly existence are crumbling, is a God who can be trusted to sustain us when it appears that our life is caving in. Is your life caving in this morning? Is it crumbling? Is it coming apart at the seams? Whatever metaphor you want to come come up with, is that where you are? Well, hey, God is in control. And you say, well, no, no, big events are, not me. I, nothing lacks significance to God. 
Your problem is not too big or too small. Infinite knowledge, omniscience, it goes all the way up and all the way down. It is no strain for God to know what you need and why you need it, and it is certainly no strain for him to provide that exact thing that you need. And I'm not saying he will provide it. I have no certainty concerning the mind of God. All I know is that all things operate to maximize his glory and to accomplish his good purposes. And because he is good, I can rest in that fact. I really like what the old pastor G. Campbell Morgan once said. He said, the man who measures things by the circumstances of the hour is filled with fear. The man who sees Yahweh enthroned and governing has no panic. The man who sees Yahweh enthroned and governing has no panic. And so the two disciples found things exactly as Jesus had told them, and therefore they prepared the Passover. They cleared the space of leaven, remember? All the leaven had to be removed from the house. They cleared the space. They took their lamb to the temple. The lamb was sacrificed by one of those many hundreds of priests. Tables were brought into the upper room. Low-lying couches surrounded the tables so they could recline as they ate. The lamb was set to roast. And just like thousands of others in Jerusalem, they're ready for the meal. Which brings us to the second point. In the evening, which would be sometime after 6 p.m., Jesus and his men, the other ten, arrived and they were placed around the table. And from what we can piece together from other Gospels, primarily John, it's that John and Judas were in the closest proximity to Jesus. So flanking Jesus, you have the famed disciple whom Jesus loved, the only disciple present at the cross, the disciple John. And then you have the one who helped put Jesus on the cross, Judas. And just as Jesus was in charge of all the events in Jerusalem, he was now in practical charge of the upper room Passover meal. He would have led by pronouncing a blessing on the feast. Then he would have taken the wine. There would have been four glasses of wine consumed during the course of the meal. And after drinking the first cup, he would have recited the story of the exodus out of Egypt. How great would it be to hear Jesus recount the Exodus story. That would have been cool. Jesus then would have led the singing of some psalms, so the Hillel psalms, Psalm 113 to 115, even up toward about 118, he would have led some singing of those psalms. He then would have directed their drinking of a second cup, and then after this, he would have blessed and broke the bread, which he handed out to the disciples, who ate it by dipping it into the bitter herbs and the stewed fruit that was placed there at the table. And it's here, it's at this moment that Jesus drops a bombshell. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. This is a horrifying announcement. And it's horrifying because of its wording, not only because of its truth, but also because of its wording. One who is eating with me. This is an allusion to a psalm, Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41.9 speaks of the treachery of a man named Ahithophel. It's quite a mouthful. Ahithophel. 41.9 reads this. There is an Ahithophel among us. One who is actually eating bread here, who acts as if he is a friend, but is really a traitor. 
Ahithophel was a real person. He was one of David's men who allied with Absalom in betraying King David. And if you know the story, you know that things would not go well for Ahithophel. He would eventually hang himself. So the disciples, they are aghast at this announcement and at the, at the language being used that's directing their hearts toward this psalm, Psalm 41. And Judas, who had already agreed to betray Jesus, he just hasn't carried out fully yet, he's already agreed to do it, Judas is sweating now. He's got a lump in his throat, his heart is pounding, he's sick to his stomach. Jesus knows. Jesus knows in his darkest hour who's going to betray him. Hardly a man caught overplaying his hand, right? None of the disciples necessarily suspected Judas. Our text says they began to, to be sorrowful and, and say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? I'm sure Judas was playing along. Hey, is, is it I, Lord? Mark records Jesus' answer. It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. But that's no help. They're all doing that. It's part of the custom. It's part of the meal. Peter's probably ticked off. Come on, Jesus, tell me who it is. I'll take him out. (laughs) But Jesus remained vague. Vague, but in control. In In fact, he was so in control that despite Judas' actions, despite Judas' premeditation, I believe that Jesus was reaching out to Judas in great love here. Think about, think about it. When he, when he had washed the disciples' feet, Mark doesn't take that into account. That's in some other Gospels. But he had washed the disciples' feet. And when he had washed Judas' feet, what did he say after completing the task? And you are clean, but not every one of you. He's appealing to the conscience of Judas. Judas, old friend, Judas, you're you're not clean. Come out from the shadows, Judas. I've got grace for you, Judas. There's no response from Judas. When he goes on and he referenced Psalm 41.9, Jesus is again saying, Judas, think of what happened to Ahithophel. Think of that tragedy. That doesn't have to be you. That doesn't have to happen to you. Even to the end of the scene, Jesus is reaching out to Judas. I'll jump to John's gospel. In John's account, he records this rich detail. He says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's a reference to himself, to John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him, to John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, who the betrayer was. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And in the culture of the day, to take a morsel from the table, dip it in the common dish, and to offer it to another was a very intentional gesture of friendship. Example, when Boaz invited Ruth to fellowship with him, he said in Ruth chapter 2, verse 14, Come here and eat this bread. I've dipped your morsel in the wine. Jesus is overtly reaching out to Judas. He's proclaiming in very certain terms, Here's my friendship. Here's my forgiveness. Take it. All you have to do is take it. Will you take it? 
Judas took the bread, but he took it without repentance. And after taking it, Jesus said to him, go do what you have to do. Do it quickly. And Judas left. But Jesus' offer was genuine. If Judas had repented, he would have remained among the twelve. Jesus would still have gone to his death. I'm not saying that, but Judas would not have committed the most spectacular sin of all time. And I do confess, there is a mystery here between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I'm not sure how to exactly reconcile it in my mind, but I know that Jesus was profoundly in control of these events. I know that that his death on the cross was the plan of God from the foundation of the world. Scripture tells us that, but I also know that Judas was morally responsible for his actions. Divine sovereignty does not cancel out human responsibility. Both are Both are true. Both are on display right here. And so in verse 21, the fate of Judas is sealed by his own sinful heart, exiled now from the fellowship of the apostles. Jesus declares, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So there's moral responsibility. But then verse 21 You get this beautiful note of divine sovereignty. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Meaning, all that happens here is happening according to Scripture, according to God's sovereign plan. And the really interesting thing about the language here is that when you read the Old Testament, that expression, that title, the Son of Man, it was a title that Jesus loved to use of himself, the Son of Man figured in the Old Testament is not a figure who faces persecution, trial, suffering, and death. There are figures in the Old Testament that allude to that. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. But the Son of Man never does. The Son of Man figure comes from Daniel chapter 7. And it is a glorious warrior. Reigning. Triumphing. So, In his use of that term, you see what he's doing. He's messing with their conventional reading of the Old Testament. He's altering their view of the Son of Man. Yes, he is the Lord of glory. Yes, he is triumphant and victorious. But he's connected that picture with another picture. And that's the picture of Isaiah 53, the picture of the suffering servant. The one who would be stricken, smitten, abandoned. And in doing that, in joining these things together, he's saying the only way to glory, fellas, is going to the cross. This has to happen, and it has to happen this way. It has to happen according to an act of betrayal. It has to happen as an act of execution according to the Scriptures because because that's the only way, guys, that's the only way sinners are going to be redeemed. And just by way of conclusion, the answer, the answer to each disciple's question, is it I? This requires an answer of yes from each and every disciples of these disciples. Yes, Judas betrayed Jesus, but by morning, all the disciples would betray Jesus. Judas betrayed him for greed, but the rest would betray him for or from weakness or fear or cowardice. They would all flee. They would all scatter and run. So then what about you and me? 
Each one of us is a Judas because every one of us sins against Jesus, sins against him in a way that is an act of betrayal. We turn our back. We turn our hearts away from him. We, we choose something that's not his will, not his heart, not obedience. Yet this is where the gospel of grace shines really, really bright. That even those who betray this great king can experience immediate and complete forgiveness through confession and through repentance. These men would be restored so you can be restored. In love, Jesus continually gives to us the same opportunity that he offered Judas. Come out from the shadows. Come out from the shadows. Be known. Confess. Repent. Godly repentance will, gosh, it will lead you to grieve over the terrible thing that you've done. But then it will lead you to flee to Jesus who took that sin on himself at the cross. It's a beautiful thing. In his glorious hymn, Thomas Kelly, he wrote these words. This is from Stricken, Spitten, and Afflicted. He said, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man, and Son of God. Those two glorious things coming together. That yes, triumph, victory, that lies ahead for Jesus, but it has to go through this hideous storm of wrath and justice. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, it's hardly appropriate for Mother's Day, we recognize, but at the same time, we We see here such beauty, such grace, such sovereignty in the life of Jesus. Lord, we want to just submit ourselves to that sovereignty, to your plan. Lord, I would ask that if there's anybody here that that you're calling to come out of the shadows, that you're calling by your love to come into relationship with you, to be restored through faith in the Lord Jesus that you would do that today, that they would stop running, they would stop rebelling, they would stop betraying and give themselves back to you. God, thank you for this time in your word. I pray that you would bless our church family through it and that you would bless us as we go from here and attempt to serve you, love you, obey you, and make an impact on the world around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.